0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series, talking with writers, podcasters, scholars, musicians, and artists about their favorite stories. And joining me today to talk about the 2017 story, Furtherist, by Karen Warren, is novelist Paul Jessup. Uh, Paul's new novel, The Silence That Binds, is out now. It is uh, brand new this very month. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> So, tell us a little bit about the the silence that binds. It's a book that I worked on for about five
1: five years or so, about four or five years, and a lot of people get kind of shocked at that because you know there's everyone's <laughs> like wants to write a book a novel in like a month now or something. <laughs> um, but I think I think it needed that it needed the time to kind of gestate and grow, and a lot of editing and back and forth. It's it's a very interesting novel. I'm very proud of a lot of the stuff I do with it. So basically, it's I have another. Another book out called Close Your Eyes and another book before that called Open Your Eyes, uh, put out by Apex Books that take place in this far future space opera universe that's very much weird and horror-tinged and strange. And it takes place in the same world as that. Uh, But you don't need to read those books first before you read this one. It's very much a standalone. This one, um, it's on a far distant planet far away from Earth where humans have colonized it. And it's been centuries since they colonized it, and everything is just kind of falling apart. To the, because of this this curse, this plague that's going around, changing everything, and uh, it changes it at, like on the molecular level, and makes them into weird, freakish monsters and stuff. You know, fun stuff. The good guys of the story is as a group of women. They're kind of like almost like a, a nunnery, uh, but not exactly. Uh, they call themselves seers. And they tend to ghosts, and they keep to these ghosts, and they they care for the ghosts. And the ghosts help them try and keep the plague away, the curse away. One day, the leader of this group goes missing, and they go searching for her in what's called the Bone Labyrinth. And then it extends way beyond that and grows even larger than that. So it's creepy, it's weird, it's freaky, it's fun.
0: Yeah, so someone going missing is a you know and needing to be rescued, needing to be found. That's a classic inciting incident. And uh, but I was really excited when I saw that uh, Fabio Fernandez had had done the blurb for the book. Oh yeah, Fabio's awesome. Um, I was so excited because his blurb was great. Yeah, the, the Fernandez blurb was really, I mean, it was a really well-written blurb. It was very exciting, but I bring that up because perhaps less germane for this show. But of course, the other show that Brandon and I do together on the network is the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And I think people in the Gene Wolfe fandom know Fabio Fernandez because he's been doing the the Gene Wolfe uh, reread blog on, on tour.com. So uh, that's a, a sort of g- great endorsement, I think, for our audience. So that's excellent. I encourage everyone to to check out the book. And and you know, of course, it is out now. This will be airing at the end of it. End of April. So it is It is available. There will be a link in the show notes for sure. But uh, let's uh, let's talk about the story that you've selected here, which is very exciting. The story is called Furtherist. It's by Karen Warren. It's really published just a few years ago in 2017. It was included in Ellen Datlow's The Best Horror of the Year, uh, volume 10, I think. Anyway, that, that is where I read it. Uh, maybe let's just start. I'll give a, a quick synopsis of the story to orient people though I, I this is a story that i definitely recommend people should pick up if if they can but the story is set in australia uh, it's the late 20th century. I think it's the 1980s. doesn't really matter all that much when it is, but uh, you know, I'm a historian, so I'm always thinking that way. Uh, we have a, a narrator. It's a, a woman who was in her early adolescence when the events of the story occurred. And the story is about her family's beach house, or it takes place at her family's beach house, I should say. It's uh, an extremely creepy, really unsettling story. But before the narrator was born, this particular beach in Australia had been the the site of a, a series of of child murders. Uh, this was not like, immediately on the the shoreline; it was sort of deeper inland, uh, among the dunes. And the the killer was never caught. And then the the kids in this story, uh, which is to say the narrator, uh, her siblings, uh, one of the neighbor kids, they are because of this they're afraid to wander too far into the dunes and. Uh, You know, we know this as readers, right? We know that they should be because the name of this story is Furtherest, right? So don't go far anywhere is sort of the inherent thing we know about this story. But spurred on by one of their neighbors who's a creepy, creepy old man, the kids do actually venture pretty deep into the dunes and they find a memorial for some of the murdered kids there. And part of the memorial are these. Jars of some kind of weird colored goo., uh, there's other creepy stuff as well. And in fact, the narrator goes back there another time and she sees six sets of footprints in a circle around the memorial. And so we come to the the present now, the the moment when the narrator is actually telling us this story in her own adulthood. there Creepy old man neighbor, he has died recently, and the narrator's family, also one of their other neighbors, they're they're taking it upon themselves to clean out his house. And they discover that in his shed, he's got six mannequins. Uh, One of them is actually wearing the iconic clothes that the neighbor himself always wore. uh, And also, they're oozing this creepy goo. It's the same goo that they saw at the memorial. But The story actually takes a bit of a turn now, though, though it's it's masterfully done, very skillfully done here. But the, the turn is that we discover that there is, in fact, something haunting these beach houses. There's some kind of presence that is trying to get people to take their own lives. And their other neighbor, the neighbor who is still alive and helping them clean out the house, he has felt that he's actually even tried to kill himself once. And now the the narrator's brother is also feeling it. And he is actually living over in the creepy old neighbor's house, and while he is there, he he takes his own life. And so now at the moment of this narration, the narrator herself is also feeling this this compulsion to suicide. But the story ends with her determination to to make sure that the presence gets her neighbor instead of her. So I have left out a a ton of detail. This is actually a pretty long story. So I've left out a ton of detail, uh, especially the fact that the story is gorgeously written, but we will talk about that. But I really just want to open up the conversation, Paul, by asking you why you selected this particular story.
1: Oh, well, um, when you asked me for uh, a story to discuss, like a weird story to discuss, and it, it t- I actually thought about it for quite a bit because um, I was trying to think, well, should I pick something newer or older? I mean, I when I was little, I had a classic uh, horror anthology that my grandma had given me that had a lot of classic weird horror stories like, you know, The White People by Mackin, a lot of Poe, things like that, and Lovecraft. Um, and I thought, well, maybe something like that. But I wanted, I don't know, it felt, I couldn't find the one that I thought would be the most interesting to talk about. And then I remembered this story and I was like, oh yeah, that story was really good. And cause I'd read it in like the same place you did. I read it in the, um, year's best fantasy or year's best horror by Ellen Datlow. And I remember reading it and just being blown away by it. I mean, there's so many good short stories in that collection, but this one just really got under my skin in a way I can not explain, like just something about it. Just, just, got me to my bone so the minute i remember that i'm like yeah we're. i need to talk about that story it's just <laughs> a good story very weird but also just kind of it's got like a dream logic to it that kind of works on a subconscious level like even though like the vicious goo the viscous sorry viscous goo coming out of the mannequins makes no sense in a way but in another way it kind of does it's it it works on that level where it's like it shouldn't make sense but it does somehow
0: we read a lot of stories on this on this show and they're all almost all of them anyway have some sort of horror label that could be affixed on them but they don't generally scare me or even unsettle me but this one definitely And I, I, you know, I would have a hard time. I mean, this is, you know, the way horror works. It's sometimes very difficult to explain why, you know, this particular story or particular movie or whatever scares you, especially when you realize, you know, that, you know, especially if you're in a movie theater and you realize someone in the other row is laughing at moments that are actually really scaring you, you know, but this, (laughs) yeah, exactly. But, But this story really, really creeped me out. I do almost all of my reading before bed. And this is the first time ever in the history of podcasting for years and years now where I felt like that was a mistake. And like, it was like, I now need to go read something else. It was just like looking for some kind of happily ever after romance story that I could read to just before going to bed, because it was really quite unsettling and disturbing. And I think that part of why it works so well to be terrifying is that. The the linchpin moment where we realize or we start to understand sort of what genre of horror story we're in here is when the narrator goes back into the dunes her herself and finds those footprints around the memorial. That's the moment I think that really got to me. And I, you know, because I, I have spent a lot of hours, a lot of weeks of my life alone backpacking in the wilderness and Suddenly I felt like, what if, what if I ever had come across something like this, you know, miles from nowhere, not that she's miles from nowhere, but I think that it was that, that sense that like, this is something that I could see happening to me encountering something in the middle of nowhere. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that clearly suggests that I'm not alone or that there are people around here. I didn't expect to be around here. And that's real scary.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, Especially because, I mean, you're really, I think you are correct, even though they're not miles and miles from anyone. I think the dunes are very isolated. And I think that's a huge part of like, why they're so creeped out by going into the dunes is because of how isolated and far away from everyone they are. And the whole idea of going furthest, it just, at first it didn't seem like that creepy, but the more like Grandpa Sheets kept talking about, you know, we're, you need to go furthest, you need to go furthest. And it just kept coming up. And it just, it, there's just something about it after a while Maybe it's the repetition, or maybe all, all the little simple, like weird, simple things. Like um, at one point, when they go out there, they notice. I think it was either there was letters on the rocks, or it was letters on one of the graves that was F T H, and that was like in my brain. I was like, oh, furthest, you know, F T H furthest. And then um, they find that um, oh, some it was like either a sign or something that's like a, a little uplifting sign mentioning also if you go furthest, it's the best place or something like that and it all just kind of ties together and just gets really creepy because of the repetition of it
0: right and and you start to wonder what's the order of things right yeah. is is the word furthest showing up here on these memorials in the in the dunes and and we should note, by the way, there are, there are memorials for people besides just these kids. There's some other people who've had like beach accidents, uh, people who are known to the, the characters in this story. But then also seemingly just there are memorials for people they don't even know about here. So there's a lot of creepiness back there. But yeah, the question really then becomes... Do is, is Grandpa Sheets, their creepy old neighbor, saying the word furtherest because he's visited these memorials and seen the word written there and has adopted it and is maybe saying something kind of sly for the kids so they'll know when they've reached their destination? Or is he the reason that it says furtherest out, out there, right? What's the connection between it? And f- trying to figure that out is also real creepy.
1: Yeah, the connections also, like that, that the thing that's a lot of it is the connections are creepy because there's a lot of strange connections that kind of work on you in a subconscious way. Um, like the fact that the jars full of the weird yellow fluid, um, in the dunes were the same jars that he brings over, the grandpa sheets brings over for
0: blackberry jam at one point. And that is real creepy. And in fact, I you know as soon as we make that realization or get that pointed out to us, you think you know they ate this. You know, of course, it's been like a decade since they since they had consumed it, right? In the narration. So I think we're at that point. I had to sort of talk myself down. I'm like, this is not a you know turn into a tentacle monster type of story. That's not what's about to about to happen here. But Grandpa Sheets is a real. I mean, he's a mystery. And in fact, maybe that's kind of even the central puzzle of this story is is whether or not Grandpa Sheets is the the child murderer. If he was the one who killed these kids or you know um, and and they don't know the answer to this but there certainly are lots of connections. We should say that these these mannequins that he's got are Mannequins that were actually used by the police who were investigating these child murderers. They were dressing them up to be three dimensional representations of uh, oral descriptions that they got from from people who saw strangers in the vicinity. You know, over the the, the days when these children were murdered, and so they had mocked them up with clothing uh, and uh, presumably, you know, made these bodies sort of resemble the bodies of the people who were being described and so on, and were taking them around in showing them to people as a way of kind of jogging other people's memories saying, are you sure you didn't see anyone wearing an outfit like this, you know, on the day in question? And so even why and how does Grandpa Sheets have these is real weird.
1: Right. Yeah. And that was also really creepy when you think about it. Just the fact that the police dressed these dummies up as supposed yeah. killers and then paraded them around. its just And then Grandpa Sheets started dressing in the outfits of
0: the dummies. I mean, I've seen enough Law & Order to know that like, sketch artists are a thing that police departments use, and that makes sense to me, but to actually make mannequins, which look less like real people than drawings do. Right. And just look inherently creepy. Like that's not going to actually really jog my memory other than for me to say, no, I definitely didn't see any mannequins walking around that day. Right. So just a weird impulse in the police to begin with. And then, yeah, why is Grandpa Sheets wearing that one of the outfits or why is his outfit on one of the mannequins? And the supposition is that he actually was the person who had killed these kids, that this was his outfit that someone had had spotted. and he's kind of been wearing that outfit almost iconically like every day or at least whenever the kids, whenever the family is at the beach house, he's wearing it anyway, almost like he wants to be caught. That's, that's the hypothesis that we get in the story, but we never find out if that's true. And I I just wonder, Paul, where you come down on that. Do you think that that hypothesis is true?
1: I think actually I was thinking about it. And when Bernard starts dressing in the same clothing too, that kind of changed the hypothesis for me, like her, her brother. Because I'm wondering if there's – because it seems like there's something that's talking to the people, that's getting in their heads and telling them to go out to the dunes and kill themselves. And I'm wondering if that's connected to like the clothing clothing and the mannequins and stuff. But it works on such a – like there's no way that logically holds up. I mean logically it makes sense that he's trying to get caught. And he didn't seem to me to be like the smartest person. I mean (laughs) I I thought Grandpa Sheets is probably just a little like – I don't know. I don't know how to how to put it like not exactly dumb, but just kind of like, you know, maybe a little senile, I think would be the way to put it. And so, like, he wasn't all there, you know. So I I, I wonder about him wearing the like the clothing, why he was doing that, why he kept trying to get the kids to go furthest. Did he want to get caught? Maybe they're the graves of the missing kids out there, you know, that sort of thing. I, I don't know. And it's yeah, I think at one point, too, it even says the boys are the you saw the graves for the boys out there and stuff like that. There's also that weird connection with um, Jason's dad, uh, where he keeps telling the story of, well, he went out there with um, that one girl and he found the dead boys back there, like the foot sticking out of the sand and stuff.
0: Right, yeah. So, so Jason's dad is is one of the the kids' neighbors. Jason is a, a kid their age, and so they always a call him episode. Jason's dad, which is a, a great a great great touch. And yeah, that's the sort of personal connection that that character, who whose name we never get, he really only is ever Jason's dad in this story, is personally connected to. All of the deaths that we know about, for sure, any of the deaths where we have a backstory, we have that backstory really from Jason's dad. And so, yeah, when he was, I guess, about 18 or or so, he was out in the dunes with some friends, and he's the one who is kind of digging in the sand, just for his own amusement, discovered dead bodies. And that sort of launches the, you know, the investigation that then recovers that there's some other kids gone as, as well. And then actually one of the people that Jason's dad is out there with, it's, it's his best friend who's about to uh, ship off to to Vietnam. Uh, he actually dies at the beach not long after that. And so, He's really connected to these to these deaths in a in a and in, in also an unexplained way, but we never we never think that he is the the murderer at all at least i I certainly don't i
1: I didn't until the ending the last few sentences, and I don't know if I want uh well I, I we spoiled a lot of it so pretty... we yes we have spoiled it yeah <laughs> yeah so i I've, 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 we're kind of out of that territory now, so hopefully people have read it <laughs> um but like the last few the last paragraph, I guess you'd say were on Maybe it was a little before that, where like she was talking about how Jason's dad was always the one that lived, but he kept feeling like he was going to be called back there to kill himself, and it always seems to take somebody else in their place. Like the Dunes needed a sacrifice, and that had, and then she started feeling like she got the call too, and then she sent them after Jason's dad. I guess meant not not exactly physically, literally, but like she mentally tries to get them to go after Jason's dad instead. It makes me wonder if these people are being sacrificed instead of him, like somehow he might be connected to the, to the murders of the boys. I'm not sure it's, it's very until that point, I didn't think he had anything to do with that. But then after that, I'm like, well, what if that's somehow connected? Maybe it's the ghost of the boys wanting revenge for whoever killed them, you know? Um, but it's, it's such a complicated story. And that's what I really like about it though. Cause even though it's a mystery, there's no solution to the mystery. And I think good weird fiction does that. You know, it leaves there's a lot of ambiguity and it and it thrive like the creepiness thrives on ambiguity because the minute you explain it, the ambiguity is gone. And I think that robs it of the
0: creepiness of it. Absolutely. Right. There's just no way to do a metaphysics of what is happening here. What sort of supernatural power, supernatural force is is at work at all. And it's it's even really could be just considered to be ambiguous as to whether or not there even is one, right? All we have is the narrator's uh, word for it, that this is a thing that is actually happening. But what she's describing could actually even just be something related to her own trauma, right? The fact that her brother has just taken his own life, that she's got some other things going on in her life as well, the, all of that it really could just be something happening internally to her that she's now describing as as being this sort of external. Malevolent presence. That is not actually my reading of the story, but that's a possibility here. I, I do actually think something supernatural is going on, but yeah, what what its connection is to the other people in the story is unclear. But I, I, let me let me pitch a reading of this to you, Paul, and see what you see what you think about it. So my my sense was that there is some kind of malevolent force loitering around these beach houses, this sort of row of four beach houses that. I think is, is driving people to kill either other people or them themselves and that people are feeling this and some of them are succeeding, particularly Jason's dad has been succeeding at, at staving that off, you know, in the case of Jason's dad for, for decades, but it always then goes on to someone, to someone else is, is my sense of it. And then. Now, at the end here, we're left only with two people sitting in these in these beach houses, the narrator and Jason's dad. And I guess the impression that I have is that they are both sort of trying to get this malevolent force to take the other one, the narrator perhaps more consciously than Jason's dad. But that's my sense of what's going on. I don't know if you agree with that or not.
1: No, that actually makes sense. I, I, I do think that's an interesting thing. I'm not sure if I agree 100% with it, but it's a very interesting take that there's well, yeah, no, I agree that there's a malevolent force that's trying to take people. And at the end, they're the last two that are trying to fight it back. And it's interesting, too, that Jason's dad, the reason why he didn't kill himself was because he smelled barbecue. Right. And that right. was, like, a real interesting – because, like, her dad was barbecuing on the beach, I think, near the end. And there was that weird, mysterious force attacks him. It was like – Yes. She sees a figure there, and he, like, falls and stuff. And he says, like, oh, there was nothing there. I just fell but it was obvious that something happened there uh, but again it goes back to what you're saying before like was this all in her mind because everyone else doesn't seem to agree with her seeing that so it's like but it's interesting because it's like there's a there's like a weird not ex- i'm not sure if it's a symbolism or what but there's like weird connections between like barbecue and the death and all this other stuff and these these same images keep reappearing and i think it's like got a cumulative effect that it gets creepier and creepier each time these things are brought up. Things that are perfectly normal like barbecue or like even shop store mannequins or you know um the dunes themselves, you know, thing or summer houses, things that shouldn't be creepy, they get creepier and creepier with each like time they're brought up.
0: The thing with the barbecue is interesting. Jason's dad, his primary characteristic is that he's overweight. This matters in the beginning of the story because it's the reason that he is not uh, being sent to Vietnam. He's not been uh, drafted no, or, or conscripted because he's because he's overweight, but his friend has to go. That's the occasion that they're at the beach when he discovers the kids and it is how he doesn't die, right? And he immediately, not immediately, he, and he, always has some level of guilt about the fact that he didn't go to Vietnam when so many of his other friends people in his generation had to go but he did not because he was overweight and then when he does try to take his own life he yeah he smells this barbecue back on the beach and decides he's really hungry and so and decides he doesn't want to die on an empty stomach and so goes back to shore to eat so it 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 is all perhaps related to, you know, obesity or overeating or something like that. But it's, that's never presented as being like, this is not a story about that. So it's a very strange way that, that, that Warren has of making that relevant at the beginning and the end of the story, even though that doesn't seem to be a theme throughout. Right,
1: right. That's very true. And yeah, like I said before, this is a very complicated story. And Actually, when you're talking there about Vietnam, that made me wonder if like the presence, the force is like some sort of symbolic way of her dealing with Vietnam and things like that. Because I mean, that was a lot of the, the big complaints, like, you know, when people were protesting Vietnam, it was always that their kids were going to die. Children are going to war. Like, um, you had Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five where he called it the children's crusade because, you know, it was about all the children going up because like, yeah, when you're like 18, 19, you're just a kid, you're going off to war. And, The fact that he also staved off, was the only person that staved off death, like suicide. And he was also one of the few people his age not called to Vietnam. I'm just wondering if there's like some sort of a weird connection. Maybe I'm just, (laughs) maybe I'm just pulling too far, like, you know, pushing too far at this and to this idea and trying to make it fit. It might not actually fit at all, but like. Maybe somehow it's like symbolic of like the Vietnam Vietnam deaths, um, as well as maybe like, you know, um, the shell shock heroes would get coming back and having flashbacks. uh, Well, not heroes, but you know what I mean? The soldiers coming back from war and having like flashbacks and things like that. And a lot of them committing suicide because of that. And I'm just wondering if that's all somehow connected in this story. But it it feels like I'm pulling at something very vague. Like if if it's there, it might not be on the surface level. It feels kind of subconscious, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, there might be something to that—a sense of the, the, that, in some way, this story is about the manifestation of a, a trauma of, mm, of coming yeah. home from war. We don't ever get this spelled out, but almost certainly, Grandpa Sheets, the, the the creepy old neighbor, if he really is, you know, grandfather age for these kids, these adolescents, then that almost certainly means that Grandpa Sheets fought in the Australian military, some branch of the Australian military during the Second World War. That's not a detail we ever get, but. Yeah, wow, that's true. But it, it does also raise this question of, you know, why set the story at, at this moment? I actually said in the, I don't know, first breath of the, the synopsis I was giving that maybe that doesn't really matter that much. But I think you've talked me into thinking that it does, that this detail about Vietnam maybe actually matters a lot more than I, I really thought that it did, that, that maybe looming over this story is, the, is this sense that that Jason's dad has his entire life that he ought to have died. Other people were dying instead of him. And that that's kind of been the defining feature actually of, of his life though, whether or not that's the thing that is actually manifesting as this, as this malevolence at the beach houses is, is impossible to really, to really tell. And even if it is, I mean, uh, you know, none of that is explaining why there's goo coming out oh, of the mannequins, right? Cute. Like that's, it's just <laughs> weird.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Yeah, and I actually hadn't thought about it until you mentioned him dodging the draft, or not really dodging the draft, but he wasn't drafted because of his weight in Vietnam. I hadn't really thought about the Vietnam connection, but there really is, it's a through point throughout the story is him, like, not being enlisted in Vietnam and everyone, like, still holding it against him. Like, they talk about times, like, you know, everyone in the town still holds it against him. Even the narrator holds it against him for not going to Vietnam, and... Then he's also the one who avoids death in the dunes, too. It seems to be like a, some sort of a defining trait with him. Um, yeah, I didn't even think about that until you are mentioning Vietnam there. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's an
0: interesting way of looking at this. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I mean, it is, I think, then really quite possible that the manifestation here is actually something that is growing out of Jason's dad, some kind of supernatural manifestation of Jason's dad's own guilt or something like that. And maybe that has had nothing to do with the kids' deaths, right? The kids' deaths maybe were just totally mundane. There was just someone who was murdering kids uh, in the, you know, in the backstory decades ago in Australia, but that the thing that is now supernatural in the present of this story in these beach houses has really manifested out of, out of Jason's dad's own psyche in some way. And that maybe it is actually then responsible for for taking the lives of other people. So it's really the result of of Jason's dad's, which is so too many possessives there to keep saying Jason's <laughs> dad, but that's what we get. Jason's dad's trauma at both having discovered these little kids, the bodies of these kids in the dunes, but then also this guilt about not having gone to Vietnam when everyone else when everyone else did because that is a lot that is a lot of trauma to carry. Uh, it's a lot of baggage to carry. and so i could see where yeah, that might be what's going on here. and so then if that is true though, paul, like if we want to take that reading of the story, do you think that this presence has actually been working on grandpa sheets? does that explain some of the sort of weirdness about him?
1: i think so. i think that's that's a very interesting way way of putting it. but yeah, i think i think it somehow is working on him. i'm not sure how that would be. cuz now that i think about it, like um, that doesn't explain why Grandpa sheets dresses up in the clothes that he does like based on right. the mannequins. It doesn't it, yeah it doesn't it doesn't actually explain Grandpa sheets at all. It just explains more of Jason's dad um, and and what he's experiencing of it. So like I mean why would grandpa sheets uh, the Vietnam thing doesn't add up when he was dragging the mannequins out to the dunes right <laughs> Which that's another really really creepy and great image that's repeated is the dragging. You know, cause there's the dragging of the body of uh, dragging of the, um, cause she's found dragging tracks out there. So she thought somebody dragged bodies out there and then the footprints. And then later on, she realizes that the mannequins were what being dragged out there. And right. then they also mentioned dragging the mannequins out to burn them by the dunes too. And there was also, I think at some point she hears a dragging sound like later in the story and it's just kind of like that creepy, accumulative, like. Every time you hear it, you think back to the mannequins, and it just adds to the whole creepiness of it. I think.
0: Yeah, the mannequins are a real unexplained element. So I think if once we bring Grandpa Sheets and the mannequins back into this, I think maybe our whole reading of of, of Jason's dad maybe falls apart here because yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, none of that really explains why Grandpa Sheets is dragging mannequins out to the memorials for these dead kids. And standing them up in a circle around the memorial, having some kind of service oh, that's so with crazy. these mannequins. Yeah, it's real, real disturbing. Right. And so, you know, I think maybe if we are wanting to see this malevolent presence at the beach houses as growing out of someone's trauma or really maybe specifically someone's guilt uh, about the deaths of other peoples, then maybe we should be thinking about Grandpa Sheets as actually the murderer of these kids who now feels guilty about it and is trying to deal with that in some way. And it is, the, the timeline is a little bit muddied, a little bit muddled here, but my sense of it, and maybe you'll disagree with me here, but my sense is actually that Jason's dad doesn't start consciously, at least, feeling the effects of this presence. He doesn't start thinking about suicide until after Grandpa Sheets is dead. So is that the ghost of Grandpa Sheets?
1: Oh, That's a good point. Yeah, it is. It is after Grandpa Sheets dies is when he starts and he resists the call, you know? Um, Hmm. Yeah, lots of mysteries here. (laughs) I'm just trying to think because of like – but then like you had the boys who killed themselves with weed killer and stuff too. Right. um, Earlier. And that was interesting because Grandpa Sheets was obviously upset about that.
0: Yeah, that's true. I'd forgotten about those boys, right? Because we don't get, you know, we don't get that sort of like visceral uh, narration that we do get directly from Jason's dad. But you're right; people have taken their lives before Grandpa Sheets has died. So, yeah, that that hypothesis is out the window now, too. And uh, yeah, just a, it's a real puzzle here. And of course, you know, we should invite listeners to join us in speculating about this. Yeah. You know, come to the uh, forum or tweet at us or whatever if you've got thoughts I about this. the series. <laughs> yeah, and I hope that I hope that Warren herself has never answered this question because i don't like I don't want to know definitively what she had in mind because I think what makes this story so compelling is having to sort of work through it and try to figure out what's going on because we're just left in the end with this this actually this kind of feeling of arbitrariness mm-hmm. and yep. and and chaos that is, I think, extremely, extremely unsettling,
1: right. And it's and what's also I find very interesting about this, too, is the feelings come out, but they're never actually said in the story. And there's like, you know, I've read a lot of horror and and weird fiction stuff too, where people talk about their feelings and emotions and you're, you're sympathizing with them and empath like with the actual text itself, but you don't actually feel the emotions yourself because you're told what they are. And in this one, there's just this sense of dread that's everywhere that you feel like, even though nobody actually brings it up or talks about it, you just, it's just there. Like she shows it very clearly and you feel it. But it's not actually said, which I
0: think is really interesting, uh, that's even sort of explicitly in the story, right where this this narrator is is talking about what her family is is like. And there's a real sense here right that this is a family that does not talk about their feelings, right They don't they don't bear their souls to each other. they and and there's a really great passage about. Uh, this is this is when the narrator is an adult and they're all at the beach house and uh, you know, her and her siblings and her parents and her parents are old now, like they're, they're grandparent age, they're not actually grandparents at this point. And the narrator is realizing suddenly, for the first time, how much emotional labor that her mother has put into raising this family. But like it's not a thing that they 've ever ever talked about, right feelings were not really exchanged, but yet the narrator is aware of of people's feelings and her own feelings and is able to convey them yeah, you know, without talking explicitly about them it's a I don't know how to do that as a writer, and oh, me so neither. it's amazing to see
1: <laughs> I'm constantly talking about thoughts and feelings of characters, and I was like i just I read this i'm like, wow, this is I mean the story itself is just masterful in the way that you feel these feelings for the characters, but it's never explicitly told you to feel this way. It's, it's really well done. And it's, I find it interesting too. Like that scene specifically is when she realizes her parents' age. I've had that feeling myself. Like when you realize, wait, my parents are really old now. When did yeah. that happen? And it's, it's like, it's, it's a shock, you know, when you realize it because like, you should know it, but it just seems to happen so gradually that all of a sudden you're like, wait, they're really old now. When did that happen? They're like their grandparents. They're getting like seen on their own. That they can't barbecue outside anymore, so to speak, because of the they can't see that
0: well. You know, it's it's kind of an interesting shock there. Yeah, and it is always it's always something small like that, right? It's it's when you you witness your your parents struggling to perform a task that you've seen them perform a zillion times before, and that you just kind of take for Take for granted, but then suddenly you realize that they're wanting to, you know, maybe leave leave your home early when they've come over for Christmas or something like that because they don't want to drive at night anymore. And that's it's that kind of moment. And that's exactly what we get here with the barbecue. And yeah, just what a there was a real there was a real pathos to the way that she was was dealing with her her parents, and then also kind of feeling like a disappointment of a child for not having herself grown up and 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 made grandparents of her, her own parents and so on, right? There was a real one of the things that I I am admired so much about this story, is that the narrator writes with such pathos about what it's like to be an adolescent, and then also about what it's like to be this thirty-ish, uh, thirty-something adult realizing that your parents have gotten old, thinking about the course of your life and what and and their lives and what their expectations of you were. Right. So to 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 kind of almost give us this super empathetic perspective from from uh, one person but almost two different characters because separated by by decades that's a there's a real skill there yes
1: and i find it real interesting too because like this that's what grounds the story you know because of all this other stuff that's happening like it's it's so grounded in these like minutiae of everyday lives of growing old and the pathos of like you know like you said with age and also like you know being able to capture that that feeling you had when you were younger and everything was just kind of like almost on the edge of ghostly, you know what I mean? Which is interesting too, because she takes that period where like, you know, where they're younger and they all believe in all the ghosts and stuff. And then when she comes back as like, and she's older, like as a teenager and the friends she's with then don't, think like that anymore. They're more bold, they're more brave, and it's just interesting to see that and it really like I said things like that those tiny minute details and how well drawn they are really ground the story and anchor it in reality so that when the weird stuff happens it just kind of you you have to believe in it because everything else is so grounded
0: yeah, this really feels like it's, it's happening in the real world. And the voice of the narrator too, right. Feels like, I mean, this whole story feels like I'm getting a cup of coffee with, with, with someone that, you know, I don't know, I knew in high school or something like that. haven't seen in a long time. And she's telling me this story. Like that really feels intimate to me. And, and, and that's a, and that too is a really remarkable skill. This is one of the best written stories that I've read in a long time. So I'm really grateful you, you had me read it. And have, have you read a lot of Karen Warren's work? No, that was actually the first thing I ever read of hers. And now since then,
1: I've read more, but that was the first thing. And I was just kind of blown away. And I remember hearing about her, but I hadn't actually read anything of hers until then. So since then, I've been ser- like every time
0: I hear her name come up and there's a short story or something, I read it right away. Yeah that's one of the things that I really love about the you know these best of the best of the genre collections uh, I think even uh, maybe earlier in the show you almost called this the uh, the best I horror know. and fantasy of the year right almost... because Alan Datlow used to do that series yeah. with Terry Windling and I have all of those i think Me too. from that run and i used to i mean i think i started getting those in fifth grade and i used to read them and i would i would take a little pencil and make a little dot next to the name of the writer who you know the writers i really enjoyed right. so that i would remember to look for their books in the bookstore when i was browsing and that's something that i really enjoyed about getting one of these collections in my hand again it's been a while since i've i've picked one up it's just that sense of of discovery though i i had read some other karen warren before but not this story but it's just really really fun to to make that discovery through these anthologies these things are a real service and i'm i'm glad they're still around I mean, we've been singing the the death knell of uh, of short fiction markets, I guess. Well, maybe forever, <laughs> I, I guess. But uh, it will really be a sad day when these uh, these types of anthologies uh, disappear into the the digital ether, because I uh, these really are just fantastic ways to discover new writers, and it does right. It gives all of us who uh, who like to write uh, horror short stories or, or whatever type of short stories that real aspiration of trying to that goal right of trying to make it into one. Uh, I certainly fantasize more about that than I ever do about. Like getting a, a Hugo or something. <laughs> Me too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like everyone's like, you know, oh, it's award season. I'm like, eh
0: Yeah. Just, oh, the just anthology's what, out. Ooh,
1: is my name that, in there?
0: No. Right. <laughs> right. That's what really matters. That's what, yeah, that's the table of contents, right? I don't need a statue. I just want to see my name in the the table of contents right, right. there. Especially if you get on the
1: cover. Well, that's like that's like the dream right there is to be it's to be like
0: not one of the and others to actually have your name on the cover of that anthology. Well I want to take us back into the into the story a little bit here before we we close out the episode because I, I guess I'm just feeling a little restless about Jason's dad in this story, right? Grandpa Sheets is not actually called grandpa. Like that's not actually his name. His name is not Sheets. That's just a name the kids give him. And Jason's dad also, right, is just a, a name. It's a label that the narrator gives to him. But Grandpa Sheets still actually feels like that's a name that has been given to him. Jason's dad is not a name. It is just a label, right? Jason has a name and then this is his dad. So this is really the only character... In the story, who matters, who doesn't have some kind of name. And in fact, he's really kind of central to the story and yet is still only referred to by his relationship to this other person. That's, I, I think that has to have some kind of significance. I mean, maybe not some kind of like symbolic meaning or something like that, but I think it is screaming for us to pay attention to this character. And then, given the fact that the story really ends with this narrator suddenly having this real antipathy to Jason's dad, right? Where she she actually says, I, you know, I know that this presence is working on me. I am feeling suicidal. What I ought to do is leave. I could leave. I know I could leave. The reason I'm not going to leave is because I want to stay here to make sure that Jason's dad dies. And that seems to come out of nowhere. So I wonder if you have any any explanation for what might be going on there.
1: Right. I, well, I think I've I brought it up earlier. I'm not sure. Um, But like, if he is the killer, then the spirits are probably like the, the boys from before, then the spirits are trying to get like him to commit suicide and he's passing it off on other people, you know, and stuff. But you're right though. He never thought about committing suicide until after grandpa sheets died. So that doesn't explain that. Um, But it's interesting that like whatever presence is trying to like summoning one person, she wants to make sure he's dead. And I wonder why that is. And you're right. He's only known by Jason's dad. That's that's kind of creepy in itself, the fact that he doesn't deserve a name. She doesn't give him a name, you know? she's She just gives him Jason's dad like it's, it's a title because um, she's the narrator. So, I mean, that's how little she thinks of him. And his stories are what propel all the other stories forward, you know, because um, they keep coming back to when he found the boys on the dunes and stuff. So it's like I, I don't know. That's it's it's interesting. There's just a lot going on there. It's a lot pack.
0: Yeah, and everything that we actually know about the backstory comes from stories that Jason's dad himself right. is telling. Some of these can be corroborated because Jason's mother is actually a character in the story. She is she was present when Jason's dad found the bodies. They were kind of on a sort of date. And in fact, the trauma of actually finding these bodies in the dunes together is what led them to get married. And it turns out that's not actually a real good foundation for a lasting partnership. And so you know, they get divorced eventually as well. But for the most part, we can't really objectively verify the stories that Jason's dad tells us. And so I just wondered if there's actually something more sinister to him that you know, that, that actually, yeah, as you suggest, maybe he is, maybe he killed these kids. Even if we can trust that the story about finding the bodies on the beach is true, that doesn't necessarily mean that he also didn't bury them.
1: Right. I mean, he didn't right. given them weed killer, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 So it's all... Yeah, there's something up with Jason's dad that I, 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 you know, and I did read this story twice before doing this episode, but I feel like I need to read it about ten more times to see if we can sort of solve the solve the case here. If it is solvable at all, it actually kind of feels like it kind of feels like the movie Clue, where you know we might get three <laughs> different endings. You know, yes, and they could all be made to make sense. Trying trying to solve the case here, actually, it feels like I have a lot of intuition about it, but then when I try to bring sort of my, my conscious verbal brain to the problem, the intuition just goes away. Like it's suddenly, you know, just, just, just out of reach is sort of how the solution to this, this mystery feels to me. And what a great feeling it is. I mean, just a tremendous story. Right.
1: Yeah. That's the thing. Like when I, uh, I, I tend to think of it working on some sort of like a subconscious level, you know, cause when you start trying to piece it together, it falls apart, but not in a way like, you know, Oh, it's illogical. It's just more like the logic it works on is kind of like, a subconscious logic. I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, there's an article uh, by Ursula K. Le Guin, and I'm trying to remember, it's called "The Language of the Night," and she mentions that uh, there was a poet that she knew that said poetry worked uh, with night logic, and fiction worked, like prose fiction, worked in day logic. And then Le Guin said that she thought fantasy also worked in night logic. And what she meant by that was like dream logic, like the subconscious. And I think that's the same thing that's going on here. It's kind of like a night logic where you can't, it doesn't make sense in a logical way, but it kind of, it makes sense in that weird subconscious dream logic way.
0: Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, right? That there is some way in which this story makes sense, but it's not a way that we can consciously grapple with. So, yeah, night logic. I really, really, really enjoy that. Uh, that, that I really enjoy that reading of the story. But I will again invite listeners to uh, come tell us what they think is actually going on here. Tell us all the all the things we got wrong, all the thing, all the mistakes we made. What do you think is actually the the solution to this? Would really enjoy uh, continuing that conversation uh, on online. But uh, I think with that, I think with that thought, that's going to do it for this episode. So, Paul, let me say thank you again so much for for guest hosting with me today and especially for bringing this story to my attention. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Well, as we said, we would love to to talk with you about this story. So you can drop by our forums at claytemplemedia.com to, or, or our subreddit to do that. Uh, Paul and I are also both pretty active on Twitter if you want to want to reach out to us there. And please be sure to get a copy of Paul's new book, The Silence That Binds, which is out now. You can get that wherever you like to buy your books. I'll have some links in the show notes as well, just to make that even easier for you. But Paul, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you're doing?
1: Um, Usually, Twitter, you know, twitter.com slash Paul Jessup uh, will do it. Um, I'm trying to think. uh, Well, I've got um, a podcast I do extremely rarely uh, with (laughs) Nick Chambers, who also is a really good weird fiction writer. I think she had a book that came out a few years ago called um, uh, Calls for Submission. And she's got a book coming out, I think, in 2022. Uh, at 33 and a third books the where they they talk about records and stuff so she's doing i'm trying to remember which record it was i can't remember off the top of my head um, but we we have a podcast that we do really rarely called um the skeleton hat podcast and i have my website pauljessup.com, but i'm re, i'm redoing the entire thing and putting it up later so but by the time you actually listen to this podcast it'll be nice and new so go to pauljessup.com. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that is a this is a dream we have for our website someday as someday as well. Well, Brandon and I will be back on May 4th with the the first of two episodes on The Portrait by Nikolai Gogol. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.